Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Global food prices jumped by 40% in May, the biggest jump in a decade. The year-on-year rise in the Food and Agricultural Price Index was the largest since 2011 and might be signalling that inflation, which was initially stoked by the pandemic disruption, is accelerating. The cost of used cars and trucks jumped by 10% month-on-month in April and prices were up 21% over a year earlier making it one of the main drivers of the 4.2% year-on-year surge in the Consumer Price Index. Core inflation, which is inflation excluding food and energy prices, hit 3%. Adding to the confusion is the fact that inflation is measured using a basket of goods and services, which is meant to represent what people typically purchase. As the pandemic took hold, people stopped spending on certain items started spending on others, meaning that the official calculation of the Consumer Price Index underestimated the price changes the population experienced in their day-to-day lives over the last year. If you look around, you can see all sorts of prices soaring. The price of lumber has taken off, and of course the internet has taken notice. Not even one police escort, a Twitter user commented, showing a photo of a lumber truck driving down the highway. Another showed a photo of a pile of lumber in a doorway, remarking, wow, neighbours just casually flaunting their wealth in the hallway. Over the year, we've seen a string of surprising shortages and unusual price activity. There was the great run on toilet paper, negative oil prices, the crypto bull market, meme stock short squeezes, and even the $100 million deli in New Jersey. We're seeing price spikes in wages too, but it's not yet clear how that will work out. US labour market signals are conflicting to an unprecedented degree, according to the San Francisco Fed, who published a paper this week looking at 26 labour market measures that typically move in tandem that are now giving wildly divergent signals about the health of the job market during this recovery. The job openings rate suggests that employers are struggling to hire even as the economy still has 7.6 million fewer people working than before the pandemic. The US employment rate was 5.8% in May, bringing it below 6% for the first time since the start of the pandemic. A number of good explanations exist for the labour shortages. They include enhanced unemployment benefits that might provide a financial disincentive to take low-wage jobs closed schools and a lack of childcare availability, keeping parents home, and of course an ongoing fear of catching COVID-19. While many economists agree that the inflationary pressures are likely to be temporary, they also acknowledge that uncertainty over the economic outlook is huge. As the pandemic recedes, consumers are flush with savings and government payments, while supply chains are strained by bottlenecks. We're seeing a level of stimulus that's unprecedented in the last 50 years, plus other forms of support for spending. 
a lot of the commodity inflation that we're seeing right now relates to supply chain disruptions. Let's use the lumber market as an example. Timber and lumber are different things. Timber is the raw wood from the forest. Lumber is the manufactured finished good. It's been cut to size, dried, and it's ready to use, like what you'd buy at Home Depot. There are plenty of trees, but someone needs to cut down the trees, transport them to a sawmill, and process them into a finished product. The lumber industry has been struggling since the housing crash of 2007. After 12 bad years, many sawmills shut down or cut back their output. 2019 was a terrible year for the industry, and they were in no way prepared for a sudden surge in demand. The same boredom and extra cash that inspired some people to start day trading inspired others to fix up their homes or to build new ones. The lumber industry was prepared for a slowdown, but instead saw a huge surge in demand. This trend helped drive great sales numbers at home improvement stores. Finding lumber workers was a challenge during the pandemic, not only because of COVID-related restrictions and safety measures, but also because a lot of people didn't want to work these types of jobs. The extra $300 a week that's been added to unemployment benefits until September 6th may be a factor, though of course sawmills right now are making so much money that they can afford to pay workers more and lure them back. The whole lumber supply chain is tight right now, from the trucks and rail cars moving materials, to lumber yard and sawmill workers, to the logs themselves. A new sawmill today is a $100 million investment and takes two years to build. This is why, in the world of commodities, supply always lags demand. No one wants to make a $100 million investment only to see prices revert to their old levels by the time the new facility comes online. Producers have to see sustained demand before making an investment like that. Many of those who weren't busy fixing up their homes went looking for new ones, and where they couldn't find pre-existing homes, they started to build. Residential housing starts, a metric of when new construction projects start, have consistently climbed, hitting rates not seen since before the credit crunch. The hot housing market helped heat up the lumber market, which in turn made new home prices higher. The spike in lumber prices added around $36,000 to the price of an average newly built American home, according to the National Association of Home Builders. Toll Brothers, one of the largest publicly traded home builders, said on its recent earnings call that they're delaying putting new homes up for sale until they're 50% built, in part so that they don't commit to a price, only to have their costs explode while they're in the process of building the homes. While some people have pointed to lumber prices as a sign of increasing inflation and a sign that the economy is overheating, there's really not that much that the Federal Reserve can do about these prices. Increasing interest rates might discourage people from building homes, but it might also deter lumber producers from making the investments to up their sawmill capacity. We're seeing similar dynamics in the auto industry too, which is constrained by a shortage of semiconductors needed to build modern cars. Automobile inventories hit a record low in March as buyers snapped up all of the new vehicles 
while manufacturers struggle to get the semiconductors they need to produce more. Used vehicle prices have surged, suggesting that conditions have not yet eased and rental car companies started buying used cars at auction as they couldn't get the new cars that they need to rent out. Automakers will sell fewer vehicles in the second quarter than they would if they had the vehicles to sell. But just like with housing, all this means is that those vehicles will eventually be sold later, whether it's in the second half of 2021 or sometime in 2022. While good data is available for housing and cars, there's reason to believe that this is an economy-wide dynamic. In the first quarter of the year, low inventories trimmed 2.6% from real economic growth. Depending on how long it takes supply chains to ramp up and how long demand stays strong, it could take until 2022 for industries to have time to restock their shelves. There might even be an overcorrection where companies decide to keep more inventory on hand than they did before the pandemic, at least for key components that might be harder to source. Supply chain problems can be seen wherever you look right now. An obvious example is the number of ships at anchor in the waters off the coast of California. The Port of Los Angeles recently began disclosing the number of days specific container ships are spending at anchor. The numbers show that some vessels are spending almost as much time at anchor as it takes to cross the Pacific Ocean from China. A year ago, there were occasional holdups, but nothing like this. Some of the reason for this is that people have been doing more online shopping than ever before, and container traffic into the United States has increased almost 50%. At the same time, dock workers have been sick a lot or in quarantine due to the pandemic. A friend messaged me back in March to say that after years of reading about credit derivatives, cryptocurrencies, Reddit short squeezes, and other confusing financial news, it was refreshing to see that global commerce is right now in peril because a big boat got stuck in a canal. To a certain extent, some of the inflation that we're seeing right now is driven by similar issues. What we've seen in the lumber market where producers were not set up for a huge surge in demand, might shortly appear in other industries in the coming months, as the economy bounces back. Oil wells and pipelines, which were shut down a year ago, will need to be reopened, which is not as easy a task as it sounds. Commitments for the transportation of oil are typically arranged more than a month in advance. Many mineral rights leases in the United States are lost by the operator, if production is shut down for 90 days, meaning that there could be legal issues around the restarting of existing oil wells. Some good oil wells, once shut for a year, would be very difficult, if not impossible, to bring back into production. Wax and other constituents begin separating out, bacteria begins to grow, water and sand get into the well. Some of these wells may be beyond repair. Oil producers have struggled over the last decade. Their drilling equipment is old and in rough shape. They will have to invest in new drilling equipment, which may take a year to build in order to bring new supply to the market. While there are signs of inflation everywhere, a lot of it is due to supply chain disruptions. If you look at the consumer price index and its components, you're seeing inflation in automobiles, airlines, hotel rooms, exactly what would be expected in a reopening economy. 
I guess we've learned that it's easier to shut down than to reopen an economy. Other things are causing inflation too. It's not just supply chain disruptions. A lot of people suffered economically over the last year, but many others saw their savings grow. They saved money on their commute, on clothes, didn't go on holiday, and now that the economy is reopening, they're willing to spend these savings to enjoy themselves, even if that involves occasionally overpaying. But that's a temporary effect. We've never had a coordinated global recession like this, where every country is affected all at once, and then recovers all at once too. Central banks are better prepared to deal with more standard economic slowdowns. The transmission of monetary policy depends, to a large extent, on the housing cycle. This is because residential property prices are important determinants of banks' willingness to lend. Central banks typically stimulate the economy during an economic slowdown and then cut the stimulus as the economy strengthens. Right now, economies are recovering from a shock that was not economic in nature, and they're recovering very rapidly as vaccinations are rolled out. Congress and the Fed worked together to combat the negative economic effects of the pandemic with an unprecedented mix of fiscal spending, near-zero interest rates, and subsidized loan programs. Those efforts, designed to help businesses keep workers on payrolls and ease the impact of layoffs, kept consumer spending afloat. But critics argue that printing money to juice the economy may backfire and cause inflation. Right now, banks are filled with reserves that could in time flow into the economy through credit and loans. While an expanded money supply could set the stage for inflation, the relationship between M2 money supply and inflation has been questioned over the years. After the global financial crisis, rates were very low and central bank balance sheets and money creation surged. But the added liquidity just sat in the banking system. The rate at which money is exchanged in an economy is known as the velocity of money. This can slow during recessions as corporations and families elect to save more of each dollar they earn. Money creation needs to translate into increased lending and spending in order for it to be inflationary. If businesses and customers aren't inclined to spend the additional dollars, the cash just sits idle, not contributing to GDP or to inflation. An output gap is the difference between an economy's actual output and its maximum potential output, expressed as a percentage of GDP. The output gap is closing quickly right now, but inflation expectations remain muted. The final possible cause of inflation is structural. According to my friend Manoj Pradhan, whose book The Great Demographic Reversal was listed as the best economics book of 2020 by the Financial Times, he says that recent demographic changes can be expected to be inflationary going forward. Manoj was one of the first economists to predict an uptick in inflation, and he argues that upward pressures on prices should be expected even without the additional stimulus being taken account, because an aging population made up of more retirees consumes more and produces less. More people spending and fewer people producing is inflationary. 
a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now is just down to supply chain disruptions. If the Federal Reserve were to withdraw stimulus because of this, it would do nothing to restart oil wells, process lumber, or manufacture new semiconductors. Central banks generally target price stability, which they think of as an inflation rate of around 2%. They aim for this low positive inflation, mostly in order to avoid deflation, which is hugely economically destructive. Low and steady inflation also helps to grease the wheels of a modern economy. There are some tentative signs that inflationary pressures could be easing. Recent data releases from the housing market, such as new and existing home sales, housing starts and building permits, have all disappointed relative to expectations. If the housing market calms down, it would ease some inflationary fears. In addition, the backlog of ships waiting to offload goods in California has been cut in half from the peaks in February. We can't paint the picture for all prices with one broad brush. For many agricultural commodities, the story centers on weather-related factors or a massive swell in demand. For copper, the surge in prices reflects the global recovery and the rise of green demand. Markets are telling us that most commodities are likely to see their prices moderate by year-end as supply gets back to normal and post-pandemic demand starts to cool off. September brings the end of supplemental employment benefits, and the new school year will get kids out of the house allowing parents to return to work. Goldman Sachs predicts core inflation will peak at 3.6% in June, drifting down to 3.5% by the end of the year, and averaging 2.7% in 2022. My friend Manoj thinks inflation will be a bit higher in the 3-4% range over the next few years. If you want to hear his thoughts in greater detail, here's a link. See you guys later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.